speak during the main service. Um, I've actually been able to have the opportunity to speak in just about every other uh, service that we have here. I've taught some Sunday school classes. I've done the Good News service. I've done Kids Wednesday night. I've done Kids Sunday morning. I've done Junior Church. I've had a lot of great experiences here at Garden Chapel, and I've been really glad. But like I said, this is the first time I've gotten to speak in the main service, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. If you see me shaking, I am a little nervous. Uh, I will warn you that right now, but uh, it's fine. I know God's going to speak to us uh, today from his word. Uh, today we're going to talk about resisting the idols of culture, as you can see up on the screen. Uh, last year, I taught a Sunday school class called God's at War. And the book uh, that I used was a book called God's at War by Kyle Eidelman, a pastor uh, of, a, of a pretty big church. Uh, however, he did a Bible study throughout Scripture about the effects of idols and their pull on our heart. And the book was extremely powerful to me because it really helped open up my eyes and make me aware of some of the things that pull on my heart and pull me in some different directions. And so as I was thinking about my, my sermon today, I came across this passage as I studied Judges, and I thought it was really prevalent to us. The fact is that there's a lot of different things in the world today that pulls us in many different directions and takes our focus off of God in our life. And so as we talk about resisting the idols of culture, we'll, we'll see that culture really promotes a few things to us that says this is what you should chase after, this is what you should follow, and this is what you should love because this is where you'll find fulfillment in your life or you'll find satisfaction in your life. Uh, but as we talk about this, we're going to go to Judges 2, 10 through 23. If you want to open there, we are going to actually read the passage here together. Um, but before we get to that, I, I do want to highlight kind of the main point of this passage. So that way we can focus on it as we read and see where we're going to go this morning. The main, passage, the main point of this passage is that as Christians, we're called to resist idolatry and focus our lives on God. Now, if you see the picture here behind me, it's, I don't know how many of you guys know Looney Tunes. It's been around for quite a while. But the skunk, of course, is Pepe Le Pew. And in his shows, he's always chasing after this cat that always somehow gets the white line down the back. And he thinks it's another skunk. And he keeps chasing after her. But the fact is that the cat always resists Pepe Le Pew to the very end until... There's something that triggers her, and then she just falls in love with him, and then he starts resisting her and runs away. It, it's, a, it's a really silly cartoon. I love cartoons, and uh, one thing you should know about me is that back in high school and college, I did a lot of cartooning. So I, I can relate with cartoons, and I always use examples of them. But this is a good example. A lot of times, Christ, as Christians, we live like this cat. We, we keep resisting the idols of culture, and we keep pushing them away until, at one point, we just fall in love with them. And it's because culture keeps pushing them into our face and keeps saying, here's what's good, here's what you need to focus on, here's what you need to be in love with. And so as Christians, again, we are called to resist idolatry, we're called to resist the idols around us, and we're called to focus our lives on God and on His Word. And so let's go ahead and read the passage together here today. We'll start in verse 10. And all that generation also was gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand the enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. From this passage, we're going to see uh, four things that we can learn from Israel we're going to look at four uh, situations that, uh, and um, areas that Israel kind of does well in and kind of does bad in. And then we're going to talk about some of the principles that we can learn from them. The first thing we see in this passage is in verse 10. It's this, that Israel has this generational gap problem. At the very beginning of this passage, we see in verse 10 that all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. There's this generation that has died. And this new generation is coming up. And the Bible says that they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And, and so when I was reading this, I was thinking, okay, how is it possible that these people, I mean, they've gone through the land, they've conquered some, some major cities. How is it possible that they don't know who God is at all? Well, the fact is that the word there for, for know is yada. It, it means to, have, to perceive, to acquire a knowledge of or an intimate knowledge of. It's the same word we see back in Genesis Three, when Adam knew his wife Eve. There it's a physical intimacy that Adam has with his wife because the direct uh, result from that is an offspring, is a child. But here the author of Judges is writing that they don't have an intimate knowledge of who God is and what he's done for them. Well, how's that, how's that even possible? Well, let's take a look at the generation that has just died and seen where they've been. This generation probably started off as children in Egypt. They came out of Egypt, walked through the wilderness for 40-some years. They came to the land. The 12 spies gave a bad report, and God said, you're not going to enter. 
the gener- your fathers will die, your children will go in. And so this generation, they wandered through the wilderness, and then they finally got to enter into the promised land. They've seen God's working in their life. I mean, we, we think about the battle of Jericho, right? They walk around the city, and the walls come crumbling down. I mean, that's a miracle in, in and of itself. In the wilderness, we see the snake bites that, Jesus, or that uh, God sends in poisonous, poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel. The people get bit, and he tells Moses to make a staff of iron with a snake on it, and people who look at it will be saved. I mean, that's a pretty neat miracle, right? An antidote that you don't have to take or anything. You just look at it, and you rely on God for salvation, and he cleans you. He heals you of that poison. So they've seen some pretty unique things going on in their life. And at the end of their time, after the conquest of the land of Canaan, Joshua has gathered the, Israel, or the elders of Israel together, and he's asked them the question, you have to choose who you're going to serve. So who's it going to be? Is it going to be the gods of the fathers, of your fathers from the, beyond the land of the rivers, which was the Tigris and the Euphrates, from where Abraham and his family came from? Will you choose to serve the gods of the Egyptians, which they made you slaves? Or will you choose to serve the gods of the people around you? Or will you choose to serve Yahweh, the the God that has brought you out of slavery, led you through the wilderness, provided for you, and given you victory in this land? And of course, we know the famous quote in Joshua 24. He says, but for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. Israel turns and he says, yes, we want to serve the Lord too. And so Joshua warns them. He says, if you're going to serve God, you need to know then that you need to obey his commands. Otherwise, if you go and serve after other gods, there's going to be some consequences. You're going to find that you won't have victory, that you won't take the land that's promised to you. It will stop yielding fruit. It will stop yielding food for you. And eventually, if you continue in that, he'll remove you completely from the land. And we see that later on down the road with Babylon and Assyria when they come in and exile people. But the fact is, this generation has cho- this generation before that has died chose to serve God. And the Bible says that they obeyed the Lord all the way until Joshua died and the elders of Israel died. And so that's where we pick up at today's passage. Now there's this generation that they don't have this intimate relationship with God. And now they're doing evil. So what happened? Well, I think what happened is that their parents didn't pass on what it meant to serve God. And they didn't pass on how to have an intimate relationship with Yahweh. And so the children, when we see that it says that the children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, it's no wonder because they don't know who God is and what he's like. In fact, when it talks about they don't know the work of God, they didn't know what God had done for their fathers. Their parents didn't make it personal to them. They didn't tell their children, this is what God has been doing for us as a people. This is what God has been doing for our family and how he led us out of, is out of Egypt. And they didn't know what God had done for them. In fact, God had given them this promised land to have and to take hold of. But the fact is, if you read Genesis 1, you fi- or Judges 1, you find out that the people are unsuccessful. 
They don't take the complete promised land. In fact, some of them leave the Canaanites in the land, and so the Canaanites become slaves to Israel. In some places, Israel can't overpower the Canaanites, and the Canaanites make the people of Israel into slaves. And then in one place, in Dan, the Canaanites decide that they are going to stay there, and they drive the people of Dan out. Now, why is that? It's because of their spiritual idolatry. It's going to be a consequence of their sin, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But the fact is that these people, they did not know who God was and what he had done for them. And so we need to make sure that we're teaching the next generation about who God is. And so these questions came into my mind. Are we teaching, or do our children see how important our relationship to God is? And are we teaching our children how to have a personal relationship and an intimate relationship with God? One of the great things uh, as an intern is I get to work in a lot of different areas. And when I first started, I talked to Pastor John. And I said, you know, what should I do as an intern? I'm just starting off. Uh, you're leaving. I'm going to probably step into your shoes for a little bit. And he said, well, what you want to do is you want to find an area of ministry that you like and just sink your teeth into it. And I told him, okay, you know, I had felt God leading me into kids' ministry. Now, why kids' ministry? I don't know. God has put kids in my life uh, every now and then that, you know, they've just worked on my heart. And so I started off in kids' ministry. And one thing that God has really shown me over this last year working in kids' ministry is, am I demonstrating that my relationship to God is all important to them. And not only that, but do they see it in my life? Am I being an example to them? Am I teaching them how to have a relationship with God and what God has done for them? So in in our classes, we're teaching them the commands of God. Wednesday night, we started a, a new Bible series, and we started off with the Ten Commandments. And it's very basic. It's 13 lessons long, but it talks about why had... Why did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? What do the Ten Commandments hold for us? And why is it that we need to obey those? And so we're teaching the kids how to obey God and and what it looks like to live for him. Junior church, we're talking about parables and, and some of the stuff that Jesus has told. And the one that kept on ringing in my mind is this idea of the lost coin. Is that the woman has ten silver coins. She loses one. She lights a lamp. She goes to look for it, and when she finds it, she celebrates. And the fact is that it's an illustration of what God does when, he, when a sinner comes back to him and repents and asks for forgiveness and enters into the family of God. God's love for us is so intense that he just celebrates our return. And so we're trying to emphasize God's love to the kids. And then we also want to teach the kids, how do you go about having a personal relationship with God? So we did a series on prayer this last year. We just talked about how do you pray? What do you pray for? Who can you pray for? And so it was helpful, but we're teaching our children how to have a personal relationship with him. And I think it's important because if we don't, this generational gap problem that Israel had will happen to us. And in fact, it it has happened to us just a couple centuries, or uh, years ago, really. Uh, Back in the 60s to the 80s, there was a, a... gap there in the church that parents had gone to church forever. That is what they had done. It was kind of their routine for life. And then at one point, they stopped taking their kids. And they realized, you know, it, 
I'll go, but I don't need to force my kids. And so there's this whole generation that was kind of dropped out of the church. And in fact, nowadays, I, I come into contact with some of those parents. Down in Middletown on our Middletown night out, I met a lady and I asked her, I said, so where do you go to church? She says, well, I, I don't go to church. My parents never made me go. The spiritual thing's not for me. But I want to I want to put my daughter in church because that then she'll at least learn morals. And so that was interesting to me. You, you want to push something on your daughter that you yourself just want nothing to do with. And so the fact is that if we don't teach our children what it looks like to have an intimate relationship with God, if we don't teach our children and show our children that our relationship with God is all important, they're going to miss out and they're going to say, I don't, I don't need God in my life. And so we, we kind of see this. Now, the Bible tells us uh, in three different passages here kind of what we need to teach the next generation. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.9, we're supposed to tell our children about what God has done for us. That's both personal and general. We, we need to tell our children that God sent his son on the earth to die on the cross for our sins so that we can be right with him again. We need to tell them about what he has done for all mankind. But we also need to tell our children what God is doing in our lives personally. What, how has God worked in you this last year? How has God worked in you this last week? We're supposed to be telling our children that, making God real to them, showing that he is still working in us and through us. Deuteronomy 11.19 tells us that we're supposed to teach our children how to obey God's commands. We can't expect them to obey God's law if they don't know it. And so we're supposed to teach them how to do it. Proverbs 22.6, teach your children in the way they should go, and when they are older, they will not depart from it. We're supposed to be teaching our children the right path and what it looks like. How, how should they live in this life? The Bible tells us that as, a, as the generation before them, we're supposed to instruct them and be leaders to them in this relationship with God. Well, the next thing we see with Israel is that they conform to the world around them. What I mean by that is they looked around and they saw the gods that the peoples around them were worshiping, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines. And they decided that they wanted to chase after those gods. And so we read in the passage that it says, The children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And this is interesting, because when we, when we talk about this, we see at the very first part, they served the Baals. The Baals is plural there. Uh, what is trying to say is that they are serving the other deities and the gods that the people around them are serving. Baal, of course, just means lord, master, or husband. And when it's used in a plural form like this, it means higher deities. And so these were the false gods that the people around them were worshiping. But there is a god named Baal, and we see that down here, that they serve Baal and Ashtaroth. And Baal is a storm god. We see Baal pop up over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, especially with Elijah. But the fact is that Baal was responsible to bring water to the land, and by doing so, he became the god of fertility of the land. He's the one who gave the, uh, 
the crops, the produce to the people. And so when Israel got into the land and they looked around and they saw that there are some strong cities around them, there are strong people around them serving these gods, doing extremely well, they kind of conformed to it. And they said, you know what? This God might be uh, pretty important to us. The fact is that when you look at the land of Israel, it's mostly dirt and rock. A year ago, I actually had the, ex- the opportunity to travel with Lancaster Bible College over to Israel. And it was kind of eye-opening because my mind was always like Sahara Desert, like sand dunes type of thing. But when we got there, it literally was just rock and dirt everywhere. Uh, and so when you think about that topography, you think, yeah, a God that brings water into the land who produces crop in this wilderness might be a little important. And so the people of Israel choose to serve him. And then we have Ashtaroth, the goddess of war and love. She's a Phoenician god. She's closely linked with Baal. And in fact, some people believe that she was the spouse of Baal. Uh, and the thing was with her, Israel's going into a land. They're going to have battles with the people. And they're going to want victory. And so who do they turn to? They turn to the goddess of war and love the one that they think can bring victory to them. Well, the one thing we should note also here is that both these gods had prostitution and sexual acts as part of their worship. And it goes completely against the law of God. So when we see that, it says that the children of Israel did what is evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. It's very prominent because this goes completely against what God had told their fathers in the wilderness what God's covenant was all about with these people. Back, in, back last year when I taught my class on God's at war, we talked about the difference between serve and bow down. Uh, throughout scripture, you see these words tied together a lot, but they mean different things. When I went into it, I thought, okay, well, serve and bow down, it just talks about who they kind of align with. It's kind of their deity that they worship. But the fact is it actually encompasses a whole lot more. It's really about what God they focus their entire life around. And so the Israel, the Israel choose to serve. The word there is abad. That's the Hebrew word translated. Uh, it means to work, till, or farm, or to accomplish something for someone. Okay, it's a physical aspect. Like we go to work. And we are hands-on, and we do stuff, and we build things, and we fix cars, and things like that. It's that type of work. And it says that Israel served these gods. So their entire life, outside of the temple, outside of their worship, was focused around these gods. What they worked for, what they gained money for, what they planted crops for and gave crops to, were all because of these gods. But then it also keys in on this word worship or bow down. It means, or, um, I will try and pronounce this in the Hebrew form. <laughs> I learned it at college. It's chivaha, if I got that right. Um, the fact is it means to bow down, to fall before. And it's the spiritual aspect of this. And so when they go to church, they, they worship him. They worship Baal and Ashtaroth. Today, we, we kind of do the same thing, and, and American culture, I think, has done a really good job of hammering this idea into our heads. It's not a good idea, but the fact is that 
because of the separation between church and state, we have this personal life and we have this public life. The personal life is kind of what we have here at church. We come, we act one way around the people, we say we believe in Christ, we live it here out in the church. That as soon as we leave the doors, as soon as we go home to our families, to our homes, we go into our public life and we start acting very different. We talk very different. And the problem is, God says, no, your whole life needs to be centered around me. And we've kind of separated our life. And so when Scripture kind of points out this serve and bow down aspect, it gives this idea. Their, their whole life is focused around these gods. However, ours might just be, well, God, you have your place here at church. I'll focus on you here. But once I go to work, once I go home to my family... That's, that's a whole other thing. I've got to take control of that. I've got to handle that. And so we kind of push God to the side and we, allow, we take this public life to take over. But again, they serve and they bow down to these gods. Well, we need to note that this idolatry... Oh, sorry about this one. Uh, we do have some pictures up here. The far right one here is a picture of Baal uh, from what he looked like in the old days. It's a tablet. Then we have a temple statue, temple statue, whoo, uh, of what an idol would have looked like at the temple. But then on, on this far side here, we see a household god. This is what the people would have had up on their shelves at home that they can worship. Uh, and, and so when God says, don't have any other gods besides me, he's kind of referencing to these household gods. Don't put God on the shelf with all these other gods. He, he's unlike anything you've ever seen heard, or know about. And so those are just some of the ideas of what we need to get in our heads when they talk about these idols. Um, But we see some consequences that Israel has because of serving the Baals and the Ashtaroths. The the first thing we see is that they, they have a loss of victory in their life. The Bible says that God handed them over to the plunderers, and when the when they went out, or when they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. God had taken away the victory. He said, if you're not going to worship me, if you're not going to serve me like, and obey my commands like your fathers did, I'm not going to give you victory in this land. You're not going to do this on your own, and you're not going to give credit to these idols that gave, to give them uh, the victory. So the fact is, he takes that away, and he allows these nations to come in and to plunder them and to oppress them, and to enslave them again. And if you read through the book of Judges, you see this happens over and over and over again. It's spiritual idolatry to enslavement and oppression, and then God saves them with the judge. But the fact is that God here in this passage directly says, look, I'm pulling the victory out. I'm not giving you victory anymore if you're not going to serve me. So that was a consequence of them serving and worshiping idols. Then we see that they have pain and distress that overwhelms them. If you look down in uh, verse 15, it says, it ends that little paragraph there. It says, and they were in terrible distress. And then when you look over at verse 18, it says, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And so because of their sin, they weren't being successful in the land. They weren't ruling the land like they were supposed to. They were being oppressed and put down. And a lot of times when we serve idols, it's a common consequence. They overtake our life, they kind of push us down, and we become slaves to them. 
And then finally, note that a lot of times in this passage it says that the Lord was moved to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and the Lord, uh, they provoked the Lord. And and so God became angry at these people, his children. And we know that God disciplines those he loves. And so he's, he's going to allow the consequences of Israel's sin to take a hold of them and lead them to a place that they don't want to go. But God, of course, is merciful, and he doesn't leave them there. But the question we want to ask is, what are some of the gods that we center our lives around? What gods does culture present us to follow? Because if we're going to talk about resisting the gods of culture, we kind of need to know what they're promoting. And so as I thought about this, I picked out some of the bigger ones. The first one here is money. I think our culture does a really good job at promoting money. Uh, if you look at commercials on television, and I had the opportunity to do this yesterday during the football game, uh, how many credit card commercials can be fit in between se- TV segments? Capital One is pretty much the big one, which is cash back, but everything on or everything about our culture screams, you need to have money. You need to have a steady source of income. You need to make sure that you have a whole lot stored up so that you're secure. If you have money, you will be secure, and you'll also have power and prestige. Money can bring those things to you. And it's a lie that our culture kind of has promoted. Now, money isn't bad. I don't want you to walk away and say, well, I'm not supposed to have money at all, and so I'm just going to get rid of it all. That's not, that's not it. God has given us money to be a tool and a blessing in our lives. We're supposed to use it as good stewards and make sure that we use it to help further his kingdom. But the fact is that once that tool, once that blessing becomes the focus of our life, and we focus our life around the gaining of money and the saving of money, we become oppressed and terrified because what happens? Well, we always look for new ways to get more money. And then we never have enough, and so we have to keep trying to work for it. And then we're always anxious because, well, it's here one day, and tomorrow it might be gone. The stock market might crash. All the banks will lose our money again. What will happen? And so you'll always have that fear, that, that anxiousness in your heart. And that's because the God of money has taken root and become the center of your life. Well, another God that culture has promoted to us is this, uh, phones or technology. Um, the reason I put phones up is because we're going to be talking over the next two weeks about technology and media, how Christians are to use it, some of the principles that the Bible lays out for when we use social media and stuff like that. But the God of, of phones here, of smartphones, I just want to take a minute. You, you might not have a smartphone, and that's fine. Uh, that's no problem. Paul doesn't have a smartphone. He's got an old flip phone, and I love it because the flip phones are great. They're built like tanks, and they last forever. But smartphones, culture has programmed this thing into them. Uh, they are used for just about anything and everything. Uh, I saw a real funny video because it was making fun of this idea that there's an app for everything, and it was a weigh scale. Now, you can get a weigh scale on your app, and you stand on your phone, and it weighs you, but the problem is your screen will always crack and things like that. It, it was silly. But the fact is, they have built into technology every single thing that you could use in life. So if you think about what smartphones can do, they could connect you to people. 
You have social apps like Facebook that you can connect to family or to friends that you kind of lost track with. They, well, it's a cell phone, so it can call people. You can communicate one-on-one with them. You can check your email and stay connected to online. If you're a business person, that's very helpful. Well, let's see, there's music. You can live stream videos, get videos and TV shows that have just aired on your phone. You could get the newspaper and read daily news. You could put the Bible on there, which is a great tool. You, you have a camera built into the phone. You have a recorder so you can record events, record messages, record whatever uh, music. I mean, phones are used for everything. You can order food with the phone, right? You call Pizza Hut. I just saw Domino's is now doing a new one that you can just text a certain uh, a number to Domino's and they'll order a pizza for you. And it's kind of crazy. But then we also see the GPS and, and things like that. And so the cell phone has become kind of this tool that's all-purposed. It's the Swiss Army knife of technology. The fact is that culture has says, look, you can use this for every single aspect. And the problem is it becomes the focus of many people's lives that they have to have their phone on them. In fact, Business Insider Weekly uh, talked about this. They said that the average person spends two hours per day on just their cell phone. And that's not calling people. That's, that's just looking at Facebook, going on the Internet, doing silly things, playing games. I mean, you talk about it. But two hours is a lot of time per day. That's 14 hours per week on just your phone. And so culture has promoted this idea and said, look, this is a God you need to have in your life. And for many people, especially Christians, we fall into this entrapment. And it takes kind of root on our heart. And we say, I can't live without my phone. If it breaks or uh, if anything happens to it, you know, I'm going to be lost. I'll, I'll have no idea what to do. The fact is the phone isn't important in our lives. It's a useful tool, yet again, that God has given to us, given us the knowledge to make. But when it becomes a God, it becomes all-consuming. And so it actually takes control of our lives, and we find that we're wasting a lot of time on it. Then there's entertainment, the God of entertainment. And my illustration for this is real fun. Uh, How many of you guys have ever been to a tailgate before? Anyone? Okay, Mark. (laughs) Uh, Me and my dad, we're big Penn State fans, and he used to get tickets from his um, good friend who had really nice seats up there. And we actually did go tailgating a couple times. Have you ever thought about what tailgating is? It's kind of weird. You park your car, you open up your trunk, you blare the pregame radio show, so that way you're up to date with all what's going on, who's going to be playing, what's going to be happening, what the weather's like. You get your drinks out, you get your, your portable grill out, you start grilling food. You're talking with the person who's parked next to you about how they're doing, where they're from, what their favorite team is, who their favorite player is. You're probably sharing food with them, and that's kind of the weird aspect because if you're grabbing food from a stranger, it's a little weird for me. But the fact is, when was the last time, or we get so psyched up about sports and about games like that, when we come to church, we kind of think it's it's a drag, we're kind of being forced to go to church. Uh, I wake up and I say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just tired. I don't want to have to go to church again. What's this about? Why am I even going? The fact is, 
culture has said, this is what you need to be psyched for. This is what you need to focus your entire life around. Sports. It's a, just a great illustration of entertainment. It's not a bad thing, but when it becomes a god, it's a horrible, horrible idol. And it takes control of our lives. And so we're more willing to be psyched up about a football game than we are about going to church and about spending time with God. We can't live without, you know, our score updates and our, our uh, player lists and things like that. But, you know, we'll, we'll forgo reading God's word for a week or spending time in prayer with him. And so this God of entertainment becomes all important to us. Then there's this one, which might make you angry, might make you happy, I don't know. The God of food. All, our culture does a very good job about promoting food. Now, it's getting a little bit better because they want to kind of promote the healthy aspect of food. But still, they promote that food can be extremely satisfying. And it can. Again, it's not a bad thing. It's a blessing from God meant to give us energy so that we can work and serve God. But the problem is when it becomes a God in our lives, it takes a critical toll on us. One statistic that I found uh, this last week was Two-thirds of all Americans are overweight. One-third is listed as obese. And the fact is that it kind of shows us where the American heart is at. We can find a lot in food. When people are hurt and depressed and sad, a lot of them turn to food. And so they eat and eat and eat until they feel full and happy. And the fact is it actually does give you this high. And once after an hour or two has gone by, you experience this new low, this deep depression again. And so you turn back to food, and you eat more to experience this high again, and then it goes back down. The fact is, that's what the God of food does. It never truly satisfies you. And in fact, it can eat away at your life. And then the last one culture really promotes is this, love and sex, the romantic Feeling of love. Chase after it, is what culture says. In fact, a lot of our TV shows, a lot of our movies, is all about this. And I actually talked to Paul this last week. We were, we were talking about this idea, and I said, Disney has done a really good job of promoting this. That love is this feeling that you feel towards someone, but once it's gone, you kind of chase after it in someone else. And so what the world tells us is that you want to chase after this feeling of love because it's the most important thing to you. It means the most. It will give you the deepest satisfaction you can find in life. But once it's gone, you leave that person behind and you chase it in someone else. And it's all right to do that because this is love we're talking about. And so our culture has really promoted this God. Well, Romans 12.2 tells us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 1 Peter 1.14 and 15 tells us not to be conformed to the passions of our lust. So we're not supposed to be just giving in to what we want to serve. Not supposed to be conforming to what the world is serving. As Israel conformed to the gods around them, as Christians, we're supposed to resist that conformity and become something new. Well, the third thing we see here is that Israel focuses on the one living God for help. If you read throughout the book of Judges, when Israel's in this depression and this oppression and enslavement by people, who do they turn to? They don't turn to Baal and Ashtaroth, that's for sure. And in fact, in this passage, we don't even see them 
mentioned as answering the people's plea? Who is it that answers the call, the crying out of Israel? It's Yahweh. It's the God that they were serving. And it says, and Israel keeps turning back to them after, over and over and over again. And in Judges, at one point, God just gets fed up and he kind of scoffs at them. He says, yeah, I'll save you, but this is not going to last. I'm not going to give you the peace that you had before. Because he knew the people's hearts. They were stubborn in their ways, and they kept doing the same thing over and over again. And so notice that Israel, when, when they're in the times of hurting, they focus their life on God. And then God shows pity on them, and he provides a way of salvation and a savior. He sends a judge to them. And if it, uh, during the winter quarter, I'm actually going to be doing a book study through Judges, so I want to encourage you to come out for that during the Good News service. It's really interesting to see the different types of judges that come into play. But every time, God sends a judge. These people are civil leaders. They're not really spiritual leaders, though they do have some spiritual leadership. The fact is that the judges come, they rescue the people, and they kind of rule over the people. And then while they're ruling, the people are doing the right thing spiritually. They are obeying God's commands. But as soon as that judge dies... They go back to their former ways and start serving the the gods of the lands around them. But this kind of calls to attention that we need to remember in our lives that God has sent a savior to us, someone to come rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from this idolatry. His name is Jesus Christ. And again, he came to die for us, to take away our sins so that we could be right with God. Note that God strengthens those he calls. He gives strength to the judges. Verse 18 tells us, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. He wasn't with the people. He was with the judge. The judge obeyed most of the time. The first couple obeyed God, obeyed his commands. But then we see eventually the judges stop, kind of, they push away from God and they do their own thing. But the fact is that God strengthens the judge to accomplish a task. We need to remember that God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us be empowered and able to live holy lives for him. We're not on our own. We don't have to, to please God, obey his commandments on our own. If it was like that, we would never succeed. We would always fail. But the fact is God has sent his spirit to indwell in us and make it possible for us to live for him. And then note that God tests his children to see what, where their faith is going to be at. He directly says, I'm leaving the people here to see how my people will respond. Will they turn to me and obey my commands? Or will they go after other gods? God gets his answer pretty quickly. They turn back and they do the same thing over and over again. And then again here, the last point, Israel drops back into the habits of idolatry. They thought that they could serve Yahweh, this God that has rescued them, the same way that they served the other gods. And in fact, they didn't get rid of their old gods. They just kind of put them to the side for a little bit. And once they were done with Yahweh, they brought the old gods back. They fell right back into the old routine. In fact, Scripture again says that they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So since Baal and Ashtaroth had temple prostitution and things like that, they continued in that. They didn't drop that. And that's sad. And the fact is, for Christians, we're called to be different. We're called to live a changed life for Christ because of what he did for us. 
Ephesians 4.22 says, put off your old self and put on the new self. Galatians 2.20 says that we've been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. We're supposed to be living our life for God. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says that he's delivered us out of the dominion or kingdom of darkness and transferred us into a new kingdom. So we don't live like we were in that old kingdom. We live in a new kingdom, and we're supposed to follow its laws and its rules. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 tells us that we're supposed to put to death idolatry to get it out of our lives. And then Galatians 5, 18 through 25 tells us that the, one of the evidence of the work of the flesh, that you're relying on yourself, is this idolatry, that you're so focused on it. Because if you're living in the Spirit, you'll find love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. And so again, are, are we just dropping back into the old habits of our, our, our ways, our sinful ways? Or are we putting on the new self and living for God? Well, there's four things that we can learn from this, uh, four simple principles uh, just to make it easy to memorize. Teach, resist, focus, and change. Four points of this passage. Teach, we're supposed to teach others about who God is and what he's like. We're supposed to resist idols and push away from conforming to the culture around us. We're supposed to focus our life on God and what he's done for us. And we're supposed to change our habits and our ways. We're supposed to live for God. And so as we go out of here, we need to remember that as Christians, we are called to resist idolatry and focus our lives on God. If we focus on focus our lives on God, we will have blessing and we will have success. We will find true inner joy because of what God has done and because we have attained Christ in our lives. However, if we choose to reject God and just continue to follow after these idols, we shouldn't be surprised to find hurt and pain in our life then. Idols do not satisfy us. They do not heal us. They do not help us. Only the one true living God is enough for us. So I I just want to close. Are we going to serve and worship the one true God, or are we going to live for idols that will never answer or save us? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you so much for what it is that you have done for us and for who you are. God, you are a holy and righteous God. You are set apart from anything. Lord, you are like no, nothing and no one else. Lord, I am thankful that you have given us an opportunity as Christians to be your people and to live out your law and to live for you. Lord, I pray that we will continue to find life in you if we have trusted you as our Lord and Savior. God, I pray that as Christians that we choose to resist the idols that the world is pushing on us. We choose to resist just conforming and going along with what looks good. Lord, I pray that we resist giving in to our lusts and following after what makes us feel good. God, I pray that our focus will continually be on you and that you will satisfy us. Lord, I pray if someone here does not know you and that they're chasing after idols and they see this hurt, this oppression in their life, that they will realize that they can find life and have it more abundantly in you and in your son. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us as we leave here today, and I pray that you will continue to work in our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.